0: Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning, this is Peter Lewis and a warm welcome to Money Talk for Tuesday the 13th of June. Thank you for listening and for making this programme one of the top 10 most listened to financial podcasts on Apple Podcasts in Hong Kong. You can also find the show on Google Podcasts and Spotify. Just look for Peter Lewis's Money Talk. And if you want more information on this programme or would like to read my daily newsletter, then please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, the US Federal Reserve is expected to forego another interest rate hike in its monetary policy meeting, which starts later today, after more than a year of driving up interest rates. Policymakers are expected to leave rates in a range of 5% to quarter percent at their meeting, which concludes Thursday morning, Hong Kong time. Fed funds futures markets are pricing in a 77% probability of no change, but investors are laying 73% odds that the US central bank will increase rates again in July. U.S. consumer expectations for year-ahead inflation fell to their lowest level in two years, according to the Federal Reserve Bank of New York's latest survey. Median inflation expectations for the year ahead declined 0.3 percentage points to 4.1%. That's the lowest reading since May 2021. India's consumer price inflation has eased to the lowest level in 25 months. The annual inflation rate in India fell to 4.25% in May from 4.7% in the previous month. That's the lowest since April 2021 and firmly below market forecasts of 4.42%. Food inflation eased to 2.9% in May from 3.84% in the month of April. The food basket accounts for nearly half of the consumer price index in India. On today's Money Talk, I'm joined by Asian fund management industry consultant Stuart Aldcroft, Pete Sweeney, financial columnist at Reuters, and from the USA, Tony Nash, founder of Complete Intelligence. On Wall Street, U.S. stocks rose Monday as investors anticipated the first pause in the central bank's 14-month campaign to tame inflation. The benchmark S&P 500 climbed 0.9% to a 13-month high of 4,339, consolidating its move last week into bull market territory. The S&P 500 is up more than 21% now from its October 2022 low, but those gains have been driven almost entirely by just seven stocks tech-heavy Nasdaq Composite added 1.5% to end the session at 13,462. That's the highest in almost 14 months and takes the Nasdaq's rebound from its 52-week low in December to 32%. The Dow climbed 190 points on 0.6% to close at 34,066. Chinese equities dropped on Monday morning as weak economic data from the country weighed on sentiment, but they staged a rebound in the afternoon session. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index recovered from losses of 0.7% earlier in the day to close 14 points, or 0.1% higher at 19,404. And this morning, futures markets are pointing to a decline of about 110 points for the Hang Seng at the open. That's 0.6%. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite was down 0.1% at 3,229, snapping a three-day winning streak. Oil prices continue to come under pressure, despite Saudi Arabia announcing an additional one million barrel a day production cut in July at the last meeting of OPEC+. On Monday, Goldman Sachs revised its end-of-year price estimate for Brent crude to $86 from $95. That's the third downward revision in the past six months. Brent crude oil fell 3.9% to $71.84 a barrel, the lowest close since December 2021, as traders focused on lacklustre demand growth in China. Oil prices are down about 25% now since OPEC began reducing supply last October. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk.
1: Peter Lewis's Money Talk.
0: And we have a stellar panel of guests for you this morning. And as always on a Tuesday morning, we find Asian fund management industry consultant Stuart Allcroft. Morning to you, Stuart.
2: And good morning to you, Peter.
0: And over in Japan this morning, we have Pete Sweeney, who's financial columnist at Reuters. Morning, Pete.
1: Good morning, Peter. How are you?
0: I'm very well. And just to show how international our panel is today, over in the USA, we have Tony Nash, who is founder of Complete Intelligence. Morning, Tony. Good morning, Peter. Uh, it's been a busy, it's going to be a busy week for the central banks. Three of the big hitters are in action. The Fed meeting takes place today and tomorrow. The European Central Bank meets on Thursday. The Bank of Japan's meeting will conclude on Friday. Let's start first in Europe. Economists expect the ECB to raise interest rates by another quarter percentage point. The ECB slowed the pace of its rate hikes to 25 basis points at its May meeting after a series of 75 and 50 basis point moves. ECB President Christine Lagarde said Monday it was too early to call a peak in core inflation and she reaffirmed that rates will need to be increased again. Um, Stuart, a bit of a problem, isn't this, for uh, the ECB because they're, they're raising rates as, uh, as it's now confirmed that the eurozone is in a recession.
2: <laughs> well, yes, they are in a recession and uh, that's not a great surprise to most people. And, and the fact that they are raising rates is because they're still a little bit behind the curve. In the speed at which they are raising rates so yes not an unexpected move and i think we would ex- expect them to uh, stay um, probably a little bit behind the curve for a little bit longer but they are catching up to whatever the us does and uh, we'll probably talk about that in a minute but uh, I, I think the U- i think we, we we all know that europe is struggling a little bit not only with the russia ukraine war uh, energy prices, in, in, um, rising inflation and things like that. So the ECB does need to start to take a bit more positive action and uh, and, and by raising rates that they think will help towards uh, solving some of their problems. But we, we know that Europe is a, you know, 29 different countries and each country has a different economic outlook. So it's, it's quite difficult to cover them all in Just
0: one interest rate. Pete, what's your assessment? Eurozone inflation is currently at 6.1%. That's uh, more than three times the ECB's 2% target. But it is down from a peak of 10.6% in October uh, last year. Do you think they're getting on top of things?
1: I mean, I I sure hope so. Um, I I know that everybody in Asia is watching this very carefully. Um, But, yeah, I, 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 I don't have deep insight into the u.s market at this point um regarding i mean i I think it's it's wise for them to be as conservative as possible as they can but um you know 6.1 percent is still pretty blistering so politically um i don't know how sustainable the current situation is
0: tony what what are your thoughts on on the eurozone first of all i mean as as pete said these this raising of interest rates it it is quite political as well isn't it it's not it's not just economics
3: Oh yeah, it's very political, and you know I do think, as as uh, Stuart and Pete said, you know that they're, they are behind the curve, uh, and six point one percent is still very, very high. I and mean, there's really nothing new here. It's just a matter of um, who needs uh, who needs low interest rates, really, um, and and those will be the people lobbying against it. But um, but I, I don't think the the eurozone has a choice, and I think they're they've really put themselves in a in a Pretty awkward position.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, the Bank of Japan also meeting uh, this week. They're expected to remain on hold. Recently appointed Governor Kazuo Ueda indicated that the ultra-easy monetary policy will remain in place until wage gains and inflation are stable mm-hmm. and sustainable. Um, so, Stuart, I mean, this is the, uh, the, the, the loosest monetary policy in the world, isn't it, amongst all the major um, economies? Can it last
2: well, it's been, you know, they've, they've kept a pretty good, very low rate of interest for a very long time in Japan. And the fact that they are beginning to move upwards, well, <laughs> it isn't very much, frankly. Um, and in, indeed, I'm sure Pete, um, as he's sitting in Japan right now, has probably got, uh, the opportunity of looking directly at what's happening in the market and saying, "Well, you know, it, it, it is going to change, but uh, I'm not so sure it will."
0: Well, Bates, you you are there over there in in Japan at the moment. Um, inflation is well, above it, the Bank of Japan's target as well, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and it's it's the wrong. It's so. I mean, originally this was what they called push inflation. You know, just solely imported food and and energy prices. Um, you know from from the shocks of the war in ukraine and and spillover from you know american inflation um now uh the the core core inflation that excludes food and energy is at 4.1 percent
2: um
1: the general services inflation excluding government um services is at two percent which is the bank of japan's target um core core inflation is now inflating higher than the, the 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 rate that includes energy because the energy prices are coming off, but the, that that's still high. So the Bank of Japan is in this very kind of precarious situation, right? Because they would like to wait, because they do not have the economic fundamentals they had back in the bubble years, back in the, the, the 80s, um, you know, where everything was super overheated, but they're definitely seeing some signs, you know, like the Japanese stock market is rocking right now. Um, there's definitely some signs of some warmth showing up. Um, the risk is that like in the united states and like in europe ueda you know conditioned by decades fighting deflation you know and with the experience of the of of the the bank of japan tightening too prematurely repeatedly and having that blow up in their face is going to wait too long this time Mm. um and that what we're actually going to i mean everybody is worried about ueda like pushing the button too soon you know, and that's going to pull this this you know start repatriation repatriating Japanese capital back into yen-denominated assets to produce this rally. Um, that's already underway somewhat, but it's slow and gradual. If he waits too long and it gets out of control, as we see right now in the U.S. and Europe, like once it starts cooking, it's hard to take the heat off. Um, and then you have to have a lot of hikes in a short period of time in one of the most popular funding currencies in the world. And that is just going to be bone rattling. Um, so, yeah, he's been very careful signaling, you know, that he's not going to move. Mm-hmm. Um, and I take him at his word. But he, he, if you look at his language, he's also kind of trying to pl- have it both ways. He's saying mm-hmm. it's possible there's been this, mm-hmm. this, you know, big change in the way that the Japanese think about inflation and it's possible, you know. Keep in mind the one thing that's that's critical is the wage growth. And that's what he wants to see before he hikes. Um, is is the, he seeing it? April, is he seeing it? Sort of, yeah. So they had the, they have the spring shunto um, wage negotiations that happened in April, and the average number that came out of that looks like it was about three percent, which is below what inflation is now, but above target. But that's like the union wages. So like I can tell anecdotally that there's a sh- worker shortage in Japan, and like in the informal sector. Wage hikes are much higher just because you can't get people. Mm. Um, so it is possible that what we're on the verge of is possible, you know, that there's going to be a lot more inflation in Japan than they see and that they might wait too long. And then we're going to get another global shock.
0: Tony, if you look at it from from over there, the, the Bank of Japan's sort of got a similar problem that other central banks around the world have got in that headline inflation is coming down. Uh, partly because commodity prices are coming down and um, energy prices are falling off. But core inflation is remaining pretty sticky. So that seems to be a problem for, that that sort of links all the three central banks.
3: That's right. And in the U.S., super core inflation, it's not core core, it's super core. Um, you know, it really is a reflection of service wages, right? It's, uh, you know, you come to a point where, you know, the measures that we're looking at are really – They're really focusing in on what at least, you know, this month or this quarter, the central bankers really want to focus on. And, you know, as Pete pointed out, you know, wages are really the worry. In some sectors, they're not moving. In other sectors, they're moving a lot. And, you know, that's really the concern here in the U.S. as well. You know, we all see energy prices declining after, you know, we all thought they would spike over the winter and they didn't and they continue to fall um so you know the the primary secondary tertiary impacts of energy inflation those are really kind of hollowed out for a period of time right so it's really wages it's you know goods inflation has passed uh, us services inflation were you know well into that and it's wages and particularly service wages that are the biggest worry
0: when you look at what the Fed has done, Tony, they've raised their uh, benchmark right now over five percentage points. They're at the highest level since 2007. The Fed sort of says it wants to pause to see the impact of those rate rises. Are you seeing the impact of those rate rises and what, what sort of impact are they having on the on the U.S. economy?
3: Well, we see, you know, house prices, some house prices coming off. We see some layoffs, that sort of thing. But, you know, things are still very loose. Um, and, you know, we, you know, we had a few banks collapse as you may have heard. And, um, (laughs) you know, until we see, you know, things have been so loose that until we see a bit more tightening, um, we won't see say, uh, residential real estate come, you know, into a reasonable realm. Um, one of the big, uh, impacts that we are seeing however is commercial real estate okay now commercial real estate is more of a function of work from home really than it is from interest rates because companies are seeing that they're in the in the big urban centers in america they're not necessarily sending all of their workers back so they're renegotiating their leases they're not going to pay what they paid before so um the real estate investment trusts and the CRE guys are not able to, the, the valuation is on their buildings is not what it was, right? And so the real problem we have there is if commercial real estate, say, you know down by 30% valuations, in some cases it's a lot more, the folks that it really hits is the regional banks again. And so I think the Fed has to be really careful with CRE because it's going to impact the regional banks in the same way we saw in March, and it'll affect a lot more of them. Uh, And so, you know, as they continue to raise, because they will continue to raise, um, they're going to have to balance a lot of different concerns.
0: So could that be the next shoe to drop a big collapse in commercial real estate prices?
3: Oh, it's already started dropping. I mean, look, we we won't really know. I know there's a lot of talk about a Fed pause, but we won't really know uh, what the Fed's going to do until CPI comes out tomorrow. I mean, they already know, of course, right? But, but we won't know until tomorrow. And so they're kind of really on the edge of either a pause or a 25 hike. Right. So we'll know tomorrow, but, but we don't know now. But, yeah, commercial real estate in the U.S. is absolutely where you need to be looking. And it's absolutely where we will see some real negative fallout.
0: Stuart, um, is the Fed right to pause from what Tony is saying? it's um, It sounds like, you know, that they haven't got inflation down enough yet to really be thinking about um, sort of easing off on, on what they're doing with inflation.
2: Yeah, I, I don't think it is right to pause. I, I would be in the 23% who say that uh, the Fed might actually increase by 25 basis points later this week. Um, I think that the Fed needs to continue to show that it is in control. It has, as you say, inflation rising. Um, Yes, every time it increases its interest rates, that will be damaging to some of the regional banks because they uh, will continue to struggle to finance themselves and have uh, defaults and things like that. But but the sooner the Fed gets all this out of the way, the sooner the economy in the US can start getting back to some Uh, state of normality but but i'll I'll also couch that by saying um the chances of any of this really uh changing very much when we've got a uh, such a divisive political situation in the u.s at the moment which will only get worse as next year's presidential election occurs i think uh, i think the chances of all this improving are pretty slim
0: pete which camp are you in are you in the pause camp or do you think they should keep going
1: I think they should probably keep going so what, but that's just that's just my my instinct that's based on
0: what would be their bigger mistake then they could keep raising rates and potentially tip the economy into recession, or they could hold off and see inflation um, start to rise um, again which one of those two would be the bigger policy mistake or which one maybe would they be the most comfortable making What's wrong?
1: Don't we need a recession at this point? I thought that was supposed to be like everybody's expecting a recession. Where's the damn recession? <laughs> I thought that was what was supposed to happen. Um, anyways,
2: just, hasn't quite occurred yet, but it's uh, it, it's just waiting around the corner. It just. I mean, it's not going it. to be a
1: surprise to anybody, right? It's not like people are like, "Oh my god, we went into recession." Like I feel like it's been telegraphed and priced in, and that the problem is that they haven't been able to deliver it.
2: Mm.
3: Yeah, but but I don't think it'll uh, be a surprise to anybody, but I do think the impact will be surprising because it always hurts. Right. And it always yeah. feels worse than it is. So but, a recession always hurts when it hits you. And I think th- what what the, uh, the the government is trying to do here in the U.S. is to put it off as much as possible, because Stewart brought up the, the election next year and they're really trying to put it off as much as possible because. If they were going to engineer a recession, it should have been 22.
2: Yeah, but the stock market is completely oblivious to any of this. And uh, what we're seeing is um, you know, back up to highs across the market. Yes, it's only reflected in probably the returns from seven or eight um, major companies. But it's still the fact that the market is, is at pretty high levels and, and seems to be ignoring the prospect of there being a recession. And I think this is a false um, signals that seem to be coming out from the market. What's the state of
0: the consumer there, Tony? They had obviously a lot of handouts from the government during the, the pandemic. They they bolstered their household balance sheets. Have, has that now worked off or are they still continuing to spend? <clears throat>
3: Uh, they, they, they're definitely continuing to spend. And part of the problem here in the U.S. and part of the reason it's very difficult to hire staff is because unemployment benefits have continued, continued to be largely uh, not they don't end in, in a number of states. And so it's really hard to get people at certain levels within companies because, it, there's, you know, it's just not uh, economically feasible for people. So, um, so that's forcing wages up and that's, you know, um, forcing companies to take shortcuts that they don't want to take. So, you know, I have some friends in the oil field. Somebody was telling me yesterday about somebody who was sent out to their site. They were not qualified to do what they were doing. Uh, the company had to send them out because they had to send something, someone, this is for a very dangerous job in the oil field and it caused a fire. And so, you know, p- companies are having to sub-optimize because they can't find people, and it's largely because of a lot of these programs that are that are in place. Mm-hmm. And, yes, the consumer is still spending, and until that stops, um, we're going to, you know, we're just going to keep going. I, I think the part that I'm really concerned about is, as Stuart says, it's really seven stocks pushing the indices, right? That <laughs> breadth is is brightening should it not be i i assume it should
0: be and mm. way uh, it's about 25 percent of the market cap of uh, the s&p 500 which is you would sort of think it's unsustainable wouldn't you and either other things other sectors have to catch up or that outperformance is going to have to unwind
2: or you rebase the index <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> there will be yeah a little bit complex to do. Let me ask you about the Chinese consumer then. I mean, the, the Chinese consumer clearly isn't spending. We saw that from the inflation data. There's zero inflation, consumer price inflation virtually in, uh, in China. And if you look at produce, producer prices, it's actually in deflation. Is that going to help the Fed, the ECB do their jobs? Or is China going to export that disinflation or maybe even that producer price index deflation around the world?
2: No, I don't think it will. I think China, I and mean, this is very much um, a domestic issue in China, I don't think it'll make any difference because, as we've seen, the China is increasingly self-sufficient, is increasingly not importing from overseas, and uh, but still wants to be the manufacturing centre of the world.
0: Mm. So
2: um, I think that uh, whatever happens in China will stay in China, for, for the most part.
0: What do you think, Pete? Do you think uh, that there's a chance that this could all be exported around the world? Because it, it's a little bit odd, isn't it? Here we have relatively high inflation in major economies around the world, with the exception um, of, of, of China, which is sort of seeing certainly disinflation, if not outright deflation.
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously, China still has to import some stuff so um, and some of their desires to disconnect from the world are aspirational, not realistic. But yeah, I mean, their domestic demand is weak. Um, what we have is the absence of Chinese demand from key commodities markets, and most of that is related to the, uh, the real estate slump. Mm. I think everything is related to the real estate slump. Um, when we saw Japanese housing market correct back in 2014, 2015, um, absolutely nothing else in the economy went right until house price prices went on a sustained rise. Um, I think people are and companies are, most of their assets are in real estate. I think there is a sort of balance sheet recession in China, basically, where people are trying to pay down debt, and they just don't know what's happening with the most important asset in China. So I think that's the the break. What we see is you know a recovery in retail spending, but it's cautious. In Hong Kong, I mean, the mainlanders is definitely back. Um, they're just not spending as much as they used to, mm. um, and in China as well. So it's the new shape of the Chinese consumption economy is going to be different from pre-pandemic I think but um so some of this is probably a secular trend but in the meantime I don't think the United States has to worry or anybody else has to worry about China you know ha- suddenly having a boom in demand for for its goods um, not just because it's trying to wean itself from dependence but because you know Chinese people are still hoarding enormous amounts of cash in bank deposits um mm-hmm. we keep on seeing that that number go up <clears throat> and the thing is that China is not moving to massively stimulate real estate which they've never been able to engineer recovery without doing that in the past. And they're not directly stimulating consumption either. There's no equivalent of, like, you know, a, a Western-style handout package, or, you know, even in Hong Kong, where they, they gave out some some spending money. Like, China's not doing any of that. So they're just going to kind of muddle along. Um, and that keeps any uh, pressure they have on, on inflation coming off. Now, they might cut rates soon. Um, but I don't think that's going to transmit into anything much at this point.
0: So it sounds like yeah, you were... Sorry,
1: the,
3: the,
2: the idea of handing out a package, though, is um, slightly different between Hong Kong and Macau, where you've got what, seven, 7 million people in Hong Kong, half a million people in Macau, to mm. 1.4 billion people, where it makes a massive difference. But, but I think yeah. we, we underestimate the benefit that Hong Kong might continue to, to receive, because we have seen, what, 10 million people from China visit this year so far, and, and the numbers every week are increasing. They're not spending in the traditional way of, the, of these sort of um, cheap jewellery shops, but they are getting out and spending in a, an, an a broader part of the economy of Hong Kong. So I think Hong Kong is actually going to do quite well out of out of the chain. No, definitely. The
1: and, and they specifically benefited by, from this kind of frugality because Hong Kong is, on balance, a frugal destination. You can beat Hong Kong by train. You know, you don't have to buy. I don't know anybody anybody's looking at airplane tickets these days, but like, it's a lot more expensive to fly to Japan and these yeah. other places. So, um, the, the uh, so and, and it's it's yeah, I agree. It's it's nice for Hong Kong, kind of. It, it's good for the hospitality industry, which just got beaten into the floor. Um, you know, but if they're not buying the Prada handbags, you know, it's kind of selective. That said, luxury is still doing fine um, based yep. on Chinese demand. So.
0: Tony, how do you get the, the Chinese consumer to, to spend if you don't want to do handouts, which the Chinese government doesn't like doing? It doesn't like giving money to people. Um, you've got to find a way, haven't you, of increasing sort of household disposable income. Otherwise, uh, the consumer isn't going to spend. So presumably, the only way of doing that is is cutting taxes or all these very high contributions that uh, Chinese people have to make to, to social welfare funds. But the challenge for the government mm-hmm. is it's got to get um, household income up, disposable income up.
3: Peter, they did have these stimulus packages. I think it was about twelve years ago, where it was for rural families to buy refrigerators and for people to buy cars and mm-hmm. you know these sorts of things. I, I think those types of targeted stimulus packages could actually help. The problem, as Pete says, is is real estate. If you know if people are feeling that drag down their wealth, they will be careful to spend until they have some sort of targeted support. So if I were you know, uh, advising the Chinese government, I would say, what consumption s- sector do you need to goose? And let's target some consumption there, like you did 10, 12 years ago, and then, you know, get things going. It's not a fix all, but at least it is a-, a start to get things moving. I do think, though, you know, the idea of China, of uh, a deflation a deflationary China, Exporting to the world, it is helping some of these central bankers, right? We're past goods inflation. Uh, China is on some level exporting deflation. That's helping these central bankers fight their fight. But as we said earlier, the, the issue is uh, is uh, services and, and wage inflation in Japan, U.S., Europe, and so on.
0: Well, there was a report from Goldman Sachs over the weekend on China's property sector, and they were uh, saying this downturn could be a, a multi-year growth drag um, on, on the economy. It sounds like from what the three of you are saying, you, you pretty well agree yeah, with that. Yeah, I mean,
1: that's the key thing, right? I mean, well, it's, it's a, I mean, it was overheated. So, I mean, I'm empathetic with the government here because, you know, you don't have household formation that justifies the amount of construction that was going on. You know, it was a speculative industry. It was bad for the environment. You know, it cannibalized funds for more productive endeavors. So I don't mind property cooling off. I'm just saying, if, if you're going to have it be cool, you're going to have to go out of your way to stimulate in kind of a different way. Now, I mean, like, these these subsidies for buying, like, washing machines and cars, you know, the problem the problem with that is you kind of create a problem down the... You can pull purchases forward, um, you know, but, but that doesn't actually create more consumer confidence um i mean your average chinese person doesn't pay much income tax that's a problem with 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 lowering taxes it's like a lot of these people like like don't actually pay that stuff most of it comes out of the corporate sector um Mm -hmm. where they're already putting down taxes and the problem is at at the receiving end of this are all the local governments who are supposed to be stimulating and handing out all this stuff and their their budgets are extremely strained they're getting it from both ends right they're getting it because their land sales are harder and to, to sell, and that's a key point of revenue. And then their income is being reduced by all these tax cuts the government has been handing out to the corporate sector. So, I mean, you had a central bank advisor, and I forget his name. I'm sorry. Um, he said that, like, we should just take, hand out 4 trillion yen. You know, we should just figure out a way to pass that around in some sort of designated consumption coupon when you can spend on food, whatever, in a way that makes people feel wealthier. Um mm-hmm. You know that's where the tribe of the Ministry of Finance is never going to go for it because of what is happening with these local governments and this huge local government debt crisis that's underway, which we haven't really talked about, but is is actually the biggest risk facing China going forward. Nobody mm-hmm. seems to know how they're going to fix that one.
0: So, Stuart, it sounds like, you know, the state, state-owned state media is talking about um, a, a cut uh, in the medium-term lending facility on Thursday by maybe five to ten basis points. But it sounds like that's sort of tinkering around the edges, really. It doesn't get to the root cause of the problem.
2: Not really. Um, I think um, China is just going to have to uh, take the medicine that's being dished out at the moment by markets. And it, it may not be received too well, but at the same time... Um, China's in a pretty good position to to accept it. Yes, the, the uh, property market is in a bad way. Um, the stock market is in a bad way at the moment. Interest rates are pretty low, so there isn't a lot of wiggle room available to uh, PBOC either. So I, I think we're going to have to um, wait and see what happens. Of course, Of course, one big issue might be geopolitical changes. Mm. China is wanting to starts to see an improvement in its relationship with other places around the world Um, it's trying very hard in the sort of ukraine russia war but um, that, that doesn't directly affect the economy but it does directly affect sentiment
0: Uh, Tony, let me give the last word to you then on on that point. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is apparently traveling to China this week for these long-delayed talks. How good a sign is this that maybe things are are improving between the U.S. and and China?
3: Yeah, I don't necessarily think it's improving or deteriorating. I, I think it's probably a neutral position. Um, Blinken has been fairly assertive on China policy and he has not really impressed since the Anchorage meeting, he has been seen as a fairly weak foreign minister or secretary of state. So I don't really take a view either way that it's an improvement or deterioration, uh, per se. I think it, you know, we have to wait and see what comes out the other side of this.
0: Actually, Pete, let me just get a final thought from you on, on that. Do you think there that are you seeing signs of improvements? At least they're talking, aren't they, even if they're not actually resolving their core differences?
1: No, unfortunately, I think this is kind of the new normal um, where it's just going to be terrible. <laughs> um, but short, short, short of, of abominable. So, I mean, this this sort of thing. I mean, I just don't think the two sides understand each other or how to fix the relationship. I think also in the Chinese government. Well, I mean, both governments kind of want to, like, play nice and play mean at the same time. Um, so, and, and, and like, China will will try and reassure, do make some reassuring gesture and then, you know, float a balloon, a spy balloon over, or, like, raid a bunch of due diligence firms, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And the U.S. is kind of saying, well, let's cooperate on environmental stuff, but we're going to keep on sanctioning you on these other things. I mean, there's not really a solid foundation for improvement that I see. Um, so it's good that they're talking, but, like, you know what? what are what are, is, are these talks likely to get anywhere positive? Yeah, uh, and Pete, that's know. the point. You know, what, what do they have to agree about? Like they they kind of put themselves in a position where they're going to they're they're opposed. So,
3: yeah, Pete, diplomacy is having discussions for some result. It's not just having mm-hmm. discussions, right? Yeah. And so my grad work was in diplomacy. And so when I see people flying around to sit with each other. Sitting with each other and talking is not diplomacy. Diplomacy is having a constructive conversation that has some result, right? And I actually don't know if they're going to go anywhere with this.
0: Okay, well, great to hear your thoughts. That's Tony Nash, founder of Complete Intelligence, Pete Sweeney, who is financial columnist at Reuters, and our regular Tuesday morning correspondent, Stuart Allcroft, who's an Asian fund management industry consultant. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more business and finance information from around Asia in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On tomorrow's programme, I'm joined by Capital Preservation Specialist Enzio von Faul and Louis Coist, Chief Asia Economist at S&P Global Ratings. With a view from Japan is Nick Smith, Japan Strategist at CLSA. See you tomorrow.
2: Money Talk.